Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, a couple of announcements before we get started. As most of you know, I will be leaving and departing for Kiev next Wednesday. I would appreciate your prayers that the weather will not be uh, too cold. It has fluctuated a lot in the last month. As I stated last week, I was glad to see that uh, Bruce Bumgarner was over there, and it was minus 5 with a high of 2 Fahrenheit. Right now, it looks like when I arrive on Thursday, it will be something close to a minus 5 and a plus, with a range of minus 5 and plus 2 centigrade, which is much, much better. Uh, however, between now and then, it's going to get down in those t- terrible single-digit minus 4 Fahrenheit again. So they just had this, and it's flux back and forth. And that's just... It's not a whole lot of fun to to walk a mile and a half in a headwind when it's zero Fahrenheit as you're going to teach class every day. But it gives gives wonderful stories. It's like those stories my parents used to say about, well, you don't have it so rough. We used to have to walk, you know, two miles in the rain. They couldn't say snow because they were both from Houston, but... um, so it's it, the weather's a challenge, and pray for Jim Myers too, because they're having a tough time. He moved out in the country uh, several years ago, about four years ago. They bought a house. It's out in the country. It's sort of like living in uh, Luckenbach, Texas, that kind of a sized town. And uh, when they have this bad weather like they've been having, and they had about eight to ten inches of wet snow, which is very unusual the other day, and their power was out, and that means that they uh, don't have uh, uh, access to their well, and that just, it just gets very uncomfortable. They have four hours on their on their uh, generator, so they went a couple of days without water, and that affects a number of things. So uh, pray for them in getting all of those things. Uh, they had a little avalanche of snow off their roof that landed on their satellite dish, which bent the whatever things, and so that shuts down their Internet and television and everything else. So I don't know. Missionaries suffer, but I don't know why they have to go through that. So pray for that. And then here's a schedule. I will leave on Wednesday. Thursday night, David Dunn will be teaching. Sunday after that, Andy Woods, who got his Ph.D. from Dallas Seminary this last year, will be teaching that first Sunday I'm gone. Uh, the Tuesday night after that, David Dunn will be back, and then there will not be any more Thursday night classes in January because Arnold Fruchtenbaum will be teaching the class on Israelology, and that will be on Friday nights and Saturday morning. That schedule will all be on the Internet, and it will be uh, published and available so everyone can keep that straight. So this will be our last Thursday night in Hebrews until the first Thursday night in February. So unfortunately, we're getting, we're starting something and it's going to be a long time right in between, but there's no other way around it. It just came about that way. 
Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that the times and the seasons are in your hands and that you control human history and you are moving the events in human history to specific destinations and that this has to do with your plans for the church, your plans for Israel, and the way in which you will ultimately bring defeat to the powers of Satan, the cosmic system, and you will establish your kingdom. Father, we pray that as we live out our Christian life on a day-to-day basis that we can keep our focus and attention on the end game which is the millennial kingdom, and that we can live each day in light of eternity, recognizing that your promises will be fulfilled just as you have stated them. Father, we pray that as we look at a new year, and many of us take the time to assess how things have gone the last year, where things are going the next year, where we would like to be, we pray that we might put our focus on the priorities of our spiritual life, and that through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, we might be able to set and attain some uh, attainable goals for ourselves in terms of our spiritual life related to consistent scripture reading, memorization of promises, utilization of promises, utilization of doctrine, and consistency in taking in your word. And this always needs to be a part of our of our prayer. Father, we pray that you would continue to prosper this church in the way that you have and that you would continue to provide means of ministry for us in the lives of so many different people. And, Father, for those who are in this congregation who are suffering with various kinds of physical illnesses and challenges, we pray that you would continue to strengthen them and that you would continue to uh, give them hope even in the midst of their struggles with these debilitating uh, physical problems. Father, we pray that you would help us tonight as we study your word, that we would be uh, encouraged as we continue our study in Hebrews 11 for its very purpose is to encourage us, to challenge us, to not give up, but to press on and to use as our as a, as a guide the evidence, the testimony of those great saints from the Old Testament who have gone before. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 11, but we will only be there for a very short time before we find our way back into uh, Genesis this evening. Last time, as we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 20, we saw that by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And then verse 21 states, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. And then he goes on, verse 22, talking about uh, Joseph. Now, between verse 20 and verse 21, last time I focused on uh, Jacob as he was learning to focus on the promises of God. Because what bracketed the life of Jacob as he left uh, left the land that God had promised to uh Abraham and confirmed again to Isaac was that he had an encounter with God at Bethel and then again when he came back into the land he had another encounter with God at a place on the across the Jordan at, at Peniel and again he built an altar at Bethel and between those two points in his life 
you have that period of time when he is out of the land, but God was teaching and training him and building discipline into his life in relationship to his spiritual growth, learning to wait on the Lord for the Lord to provide uh, the blessing in his time and not trying to engineer it on his own, not trying to somehow manipulate God into getting it or manipulating other people into making it happen. One of the hardest things, I think, for all of us to uh, understand is the timing of the Lord and to just relax and to wait on the Lord and to rest in his timing recognizing that he is the one ultimately who is in control of the circumstances of our life. So Jacob passed that test, and then coming out of that, he had to uh, deal with his conniving, uh, dishonest, disreputable sons and their hatred of his favorite son Joseph. And in between verse 20 and verse 21 in Genesis, you have the whole episode of Joseph the uh, variegated, many-colored coat that his father had made for him and given to him, the jealousy of his brothers uh, because of the father's favoritism, but also because of the dreams that he had that God gave him that indicated his role, his place in God's uh, plan for the nation, and that eventually the sons, the other, uh, the uh, his brothers would bow down to him. And there were the two dreams that were given there at the beginning of Genesis chapter 37. And so then there's the whole episode of Joseph being sold into slavery, going to Egypt, and then eventually, uh, because of the famine, the brothers having been sent by Jacob to find food for for them uh, so that they could be sustained during the time of famine, they went down and, and Joseph kept his identity hidden from them. And we went through, you go through the whole episode where, He tests them, eventually reveals his identity to them, and then has the father brought down and the whole the whole clan brought down into into Egypt. By this time, Joseph has had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and these will take the inheritance of of Joseph. But in chapter forty nine of Genesis, Jacob is going to give one of the most interesting and outstanding prophecies that's in the Scripture. And this is the focal point of the statement in Hebrews 11.21, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Now, the only thing that the writer of Hebrews focuses on is the blessing related to Manasseh and Ephraim. But I want to spend some time and go through the whole, uh, the whole prophecy there to all of the sons because this is related. To, I'm, I wanted to go back and look at this in terms of its relationship to the driving principle of Hebrews 11, and that is that as believers, we all live on the basis of unfulfilled promises. God made promises to Abram that never came true. He never saw them come true in his lifetime. He made promises to Isaac, to Jacob, that to this day have not come true, but one day they will come true. And one of the most difficult things for believers to do is to just wait on the Lord, especially when we don't see that physical, tangible, measurable, quantifiable uh, result that God seems to promise to us, and therefore we have to live by faith, 
and not by sight, as Paul states in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. And so that ties that concept together with what the writer of Hebrews is demonstrating in chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith is not the same as empiricism. You can't quantify, measure what faith, uh, the evidence of faith. It is the evidence of what is not seen. It is uh, not based on empiricism, but is based on the promise of God. And the promise of God, as we've seen, is a concept that is uh, repeated several times down through this section, and the promise will eventually be fulfilled. So that's part of the test for every one of us, is to live in the light of these unfulfilled promises, but because we know the character of God, because we know who he is, we know that one day those promises will be fulfilled. And so I want to go back and look at these uh, prophecies related to the uh, 12 tribes of Israel and how they all fit together within that as well as the, the specific um, prophecy related to the two sons of Joseph. So that's going to take more than one hour to go through all of chapter uh, Genesis chapter 49. We won't go through it in the detail I did when we were studying Genesis, but we'll hit the high points. First of all, Hebrews 11:21 talks about the fact that what Jacob did when he was dying was two things. He blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on top of his staff. The word for worship is the Greek word proskuneo, which means to, is translated as worship, but it means to prostrate oneself before uh, someone in a higher position or position of authority. Literally, the word has as its background the meaning of to kiss toward someone. It, it, it's, it's the idea of showing uh, obeisance towards someone, that someone is in a higher position than, uh, than uh, oneself. The idea of throwing a kiss in token of respect or homage, uh, to show reverence or homage to someone, usually by kneeling or prostrating oneself before him. And in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it means to bow down, to prostrate oneself in reverence or homage, Genesis 19.1 or 48.12. And so <clears throat> Jacob is depicted here as worshiping God, leaning on on the top of his staff that's the idea he's he's so he's not bowing down it's not a physical term but he is in submission to god as he is expressing uh the future uh traits of each of his each of his sons so let's turn to genesis 49:1 and we'll just sort of work our way through uh probably half of the brothers tonight and then we will finish up with those next time and try to put this, an understanding of what's going on here within the framework of the of the challenge that the writer of Hebrews is putting before his readers, a challenge that is just as uh, important for each of us, each of us today. So Jacob called his sons together 
And he said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Now, this term, last days, is a term that has three different meanings that I can discern from looking at the Scriptures. We have seen this term in our study of Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, we read that God, who at various times and in various ways spoken in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Now, the last days that Hebrews 1-2 is describing is not the same as the last days that is spoken of in this context. There are three ways, as I stated, in which the term last days is used. The first is referring to the last days of Israel. And that is a term that refers to the events that will take place in relationship to the Jews during the last seven-year period of the times of the Gentiles. It's related to Israel, but those last seven years are still part of the times of the Gentiles. And during those last seven years, God returns the focus to his plan for Israel. Now, that may confuse you. But even though God is restoring his focus to Israel, it's still the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21 says the times of the Gentiles is related to the Gentiles having control over Israel. Now, usually that word is translated in a sense that it has to do with uh, trampling down. In fact, a number of translations uh, use that word, but it's the word pateo. It's the root word in peripateo, which is a word that's frequently translated walk, or the peri is a prefix meaning to go around. So peripateo means to walk around. Pateo is the root, and it simply means to walk or to tread upon something. When it is used in certain contexts, for example, of military conquest, that word would indicate a, a certain harshness of military oppression. But that's not the meaning of that word in Luke 21:43, because in Luke 21:43, uh, it talks about during the times of the Gentiles, the Gentiles will pateo it, Jerusalem. But that hasn't been true of 90% of the history in the church age. During the Ottoman Empire, Israel was not under military oppression. Uh, during many other times, there, it's been very peaceful in Jerusalem. There has not been a, a, a trampling down, but there has been a control, an oversight, and a political control of Jerusalem, and that's what's being described in that particular uh, in that particular passage. So the tribulation represents the last seven years in God's timetable for Israel, but those last seven years are still part of the times of the Gentiles. And that's clear from passages such as uh, Revelation 11, uh, 1 and 2, which we've studied in the past, when during the first half of the tribulation, uh, the outer court and Jerusalem will be trampled down, same word, pateo, trampled down by the Gentiles. And then during the second half of the tribulation, of course, uh, you have the Antichrist taking up his or establishing his uh, seat in the Holy of Holies itself when he is going to be uh, worshipped as God, according to Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse four. So uh, that that period of the tribulation is still part of the times of the Gentiles until Jesus frees Jerusalem when He returns 
at the second coming. So the one way the term last days is used is the last days related to Israel. The second way in which the term last days is used is the last days of the church. And this really covers the most of the church age is the last days because it it's a broad category. So when people say, are we living in the last days? Yeah. Timothy was living in the last days. Paul said that in his letters to, to Timothy. In these last days, people will be... Uh, lovers of themselves, they will be uh, in rebellion against authorities and, dis- and dishonor their parents and numerous other things, and they will be giving uh, ear to doctrines of demons, and that's been true throughout the church age. So we've been living in the last days of the church since, since the time of the apostles. So we have the last days related to uh, Daniel's 70th week, we have the, uh, and Israel, we have the last days related to the church, and then we have a more general term, which is the way it's used here, which just refers to fu- uh, sort of a generic uh, time of future events. So when uh, Jacob is speaking here, he says, I'm going to tell you what shall befall you in the last days. It is not always uh, the, this, this expresses trends throughout the history of Israel. So it just generally uh, is a prediction of the future. So this is more of a generic uh, use here. And in this chapter, he is going to focus on what will take place and the trends in his uh, in the twelve tribes of the uh, descendants of his sons. In verse twenty-eight, states. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Three times in that verse you have the word blessing. And Genesis chapter 49 is then described, verses 1 through 27, is described as a blessing. Now that's another word that really needs a lot of attention uh, these days. It seems like I hear it more and more. We hear a lot of different people using it. Whenever a word gets overused, it loses its real meaning and impact. And you hear people using the word bless all, all the time. And I'm not sure most people really understand what it means. The word blessing is a key word in Genesis. It's uh, <clears throat> blessing and cursing, the judgment of God, are the, are the themes, uh, one of the major themes in Genesis. The word is used 75 times in the book of Genesis and seven times in these two chapters, 48 and 49, which is when we have the blessing on uh, Joseph's two sons in chapter 48 and the uh, other sons in chapter uh, chapter 49. So we have seven times there, which is virtually a tenth of its uses in Genesis. And according to the uh, law of proportionality in Bible study, that's significant. That's what this is talking about. And blessing here is not necessarily talking about something really good. Because several of these uh, prophetic statements are not real positive or complimentary of his sons and their descendants. So the word bless in this context takes on the idea of, of prophecy, of, fore- of foretelling the future. We know in many places in, in the Psalms, 
when you have phrases like bless God, we can't bless God in the sense of providing something positive for God that he doesn't already have. God doesn't need to be blessed by something. And that's not the meaning of the word in those contexts. The word bless in those contexts and in a number of other contexts really takes on more of the meaning of the word praise. So when the psalmist says to bless God, he is saying to praise God for what he has done and to give thanks for all that he has done and all that he has provided. So this word blessing, even in Scripture, is a word that has a wide range of meaning. It means to uh, talk about that which is the, the positive benefits that are provided by God as blessings. Also, it's used in this context in relationship to uh, statements about the future. And then it's used also as a synonym for praise. So... As the, as the sons gather around, uh, Jacob in chapter 49, uh, his father is going to bless them, uh, at each one according to his own blessing. So these are individually tailored toward each one as his father has observed certain character traits in each one of his sons. He is going to see that these will be, uh, carried out in terms of their uh, in terms of their descendants, and this will uh, have uh, show certain trends down through uh, down through the ages. So he's going to worship, according to Hebrews eleven twenty one, worship leaning upon uh, his staff. And this word for proskuneo really indicates his act of obedience and obeisance toward God rather than the other word that is often used, latreo, which indicates service. So he is submitting himself to uh, the opinions and the thoughts of God, and in that he is giving a divine viewpoint uh, panorama related to the history of each of these, uh, each of these sons. And as he... As he does this, the focus of the blessing uh, must be understood within the context of Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, the, the, uh, Jacob and his sons are no longer in the promised land. They're out of the land. They're down in Egypt where they are hated and despised by the Egyptians. The Egyptians hated the, the Semites, hated the Jews just in a, in a tremendous way, much more than any Ku Klux Klansman ever hated any black person in America. Uh, they wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't touch them. They did not want to be even in the same room with a, a Jew. They, they wanted to isolate them completely, even though they provide the slave labor, labor for many of the building projects in, in uh, Egypt. They had to live completely apart from the, uh, from the Egyptians. And so the question that Joseph and Jacob and his brothers would have is, what about God's plan for us? What about God's promise to Abraham and Isaac of giving us the land? Now we're, uh, they hadn't become slaves yet, but now we are down in Egypt. We're living in a, a separate uh, uh, area in Goshen. What is God's plan for us, and how will we ever get back to uh, the land that God promised to Abraham. Has God forgotten us? Has God forsaken us? Uh, what is God's plan going to be? But they would be reminded, uh, once again, of the promise that God had made to Abram. In the midst of his 
promise of the Abrahamic covenant, God had foretold to Abraham that there would be a time when his descendants would be out of the land and that they would indeed end up serving those uh, in this foreign land. In Genesis 15, 13, and 14, God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. So now, if, as in their knowledge of this promise, they would be aware of the fact that now they were out of the land and this is what would come about in their future. God was still in control even though they were out of the land. Verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possession. So this would be a promise that they would hold on to during those next four centuries until God finally redeemed them under Moses. Now, just to give us a little review in relation to the uh, descendants of Abraham and these 12 sons, Abraham was (coughs) married to Sarah. And he also took her handmaiden Hagar as his concubine. Through Hagar, he had a son, Ishmael, who is not the son of the promise, but Isaac was the son of the promise, and the Abrahamic covenant was reconfirmed to him. Isaac took his wife, Rebekah. Rebekah had twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the elder, Jacob the younger, and we've seen that the principle was that God, going against the law of primogenitor, that the older would serve the younger, and so Esau would serve Jacob. Jacob was the line of the blessing. Now, Jacob took two wives. He is the only, um, he is the only one of the patriarchs who was a, who had multiple wives, who was a polygamist, and he only had two wives. The taking of a concubine is not the same as polygamy. We don't necessarily understand that in our culture, but in their culture there was strong legal difference between a concubine and a wife. A concubine had a certain uh, protected status under the Mosaic law, but she is not considered to be the same uh, as the wife. Every now and then you run into people who want to try to uh, make an issue out of the fact that in the Old Testament the um, uh, patriarchs were polygamous, and you had problems with David and Solomon and some of the kings because they were following the practices of the pagans, but you really don't see polygamy uh, practiced uh, by the uh, patriarchs in any kind of consistent manner. And when they did, it always resulted in trouble, as it did when uh, Jacob got deceived, and he had to marry Leah first, and then Rachel. Through Leah, he had four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Uh, through Then uh, Rachel could not get pregnant. She was barren, so Rachel gave Jacob her handmaiden as a concubine, Bilhah. And through Bilhah, he had the next two, Dan and Naphtali. Then uh, Leah apparently could not have any more children, so she gave him her handmaiden, Zilpah, and through Zilpah he had two more sons, Gad and Asher. Then God opened up Leah's womb again, and she had two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun, and now Rachel finally, God allows her to become pregnant, and she has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. 
and the order of the sons that are taken here in Genesis chapter 49 roughly follows the order of their birth. However, Issachar and Zebulun get reversed in the order of the uh, blessing. So let's just start and go through the blessing and hit some of the high points as we come to understand God's plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. The first one is Reuben. Key word for Reuben is instability and mediocrity. Instability and mediocrity. Of Reuben, uh, Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. So he's going to be have a, a measure of strength and power, and then he is going to compromise that through his instability. Verse 4, unstable is water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed. Sin wiped out his potential. Sin destroyed uh, every bit of uh, potential of strength that he had, and because he defiled his father's Beds, he is the firstborn. He thought he would assert himself in some sort of a, what appears to us to be a rather perverse uh, act. He went in and seduced his um, uh, his father's wife in order, to, and it defiled the marriage bed. But it was an act of asserting his own uh, right to power and to uh, to the inheritance. And so, because of that. He was, it was, uh, uh, the marriage bed was defiled. So Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob and Leah, and his name means basically behold a son. As Leah gives her, has her first son, she names him with a name that sounds like the uh, meaning of behold a son. And as such, Reuben was due the double portion of the firstborn son in his inheritance. Thus, the, the inheritance of the father would be divided up among 13 portions uh, for the 12 sons, and two of those portions would have gone to Reuben based on Deuteronomy 21.17. Uh, but because he defiled his father's bed, according to First Chronicles 5, 1, and 2, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, who is so that the the uh, genealogy would go, or the blessing would go through the descendants of of uh, Joseph. That's in First Chronicles chapter five, verses one and two. So Reuben lost his double portion, and he lost his leadership position because of instability. He had gone into, actually he went into Bilhah, his father's concubine, Genesis 35:22, in order to uh, assert his own position. You see the same kind of strange thing happened with David and Absalom later on. Uh, Absalom is going to take his father's wives in order to show that he is the one who is rightfully king. And so there's always this kind of a perverted thing that comes out of the some of the ancient Near Eastern uh, context and culture. Uh, because of his his inherent instability, this instability shapes the destiny of his tribe. For example, Dathan and Abiram, who will lead a rebellion against uh, Moses and Aaron, uh, they they join with the Korah rebellion, and they are 
uh, Dathan and Abiram are both part of the tribe of Reuben, according to Numbers uh, 16. Later on in the conquest, the Reubenites become impatient for land, and so rather than waiting for the distribution of land after they cross over the Jordan, they want to get their land first on the east side of the Jordan, but God nevertheless mandated that they continue to fight and help their brothers on the uh, west side of the Jordan as they conquered the Canaanites. And so they were unwilling to wait for the best land, and along with Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh, they really chose second best, and so they they show this impatience and instability. Later on in Judges chapter four, they're indecisive in the battle against Sisera, and when we uh, also we see in the uh, in the census that's taken in Numbers chapter one compared to Numbers twenty six, they de- they were one of the uh, only tribes to decrease in their number. Later on, they fell into apostasy, and in 722, when the northern kingdom was captive, uh, was destroyed, they were taken into captivity by Tiglath uh, Pileser, according to 1 Chronicles 5, 25, and 26, and nothing is mentioned of them again. They just sort of vanish. The Moabite stone, which we've studied recently in light of the, the uh, war between the king of Israel uh, at the time of Ahaziah there in 1 Kings chapter uh, chapter 3 or 4, and they're fighting with the king of Moab. They, um, there's no mention of Reuben uh, when they list the tribes in on the Moabite stone. So this indicates that by that time they're pretty much uh, irrelevant in the tribe of Israel. So let me skip over a couple of slides here. To here we go. Uh, the map this shows the territory that they were initially given, which is just to the uh, east of the northern half of the Dead Sea, and this today is part of the uh, Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, and covers a pretty pretty desolate area, Mount Nebo, where. Uh, Moses went up in order to uh, see the land where he died is located within the tribal allotment to Reuben. But this basically gets lost, uh, taken over by the yielded to the Moabites, and Moab is just to their uh, just to their south. Then we come to the next uh, <clears throat> two tribes that are mentioned tribe of Simeon and the tribe of Levi. The Hebrew, it's Shimeon, or Shimon and uh, Levi. Shimon and Levi. Uh, Hebrew tends to put the accent on the last syllable. And these two brothers just had a horrible uh, sin nature, uh, which is highlighted in what uh, Jacob says in verses 5, uh, five through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. He just doesn't want to have anything to do with these two lovely sons of his. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." 
And the point that he, that uh, is being made here is because of the sinfulness of these two brothers, because they are so cruel, that their their descendants are not going to have a significant tribal allotment. Now, there's going to be a distinction made between Simeon and Levi because Levi will be the progenitor of the priestly tribe, but they will still not have an inheritance in the land. They will be scattered, and the Levites will live uh, throughout the land of Israel, and the tribe of Simeon will also be dissipated, even though they are initially given a tribal allotment that will uh, that will disappear. So let's take them one at a time. Simeon is the second son born to Jacob and Leah. His name relates to the Hebrew word, uh, the Hebrew verb to hear, Shema. Uh, Leah gave him this name because of the hope she expressed as at his birth. And she, uh, as she stated in Genesis twenty nine thirty three, she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I was hated, that he therefore has given me this son also and called his name Simeon. Now, what she's referring to is the fact that, that Jacob really didn't want to marry her, and he wasn't, uh, she wasn't his favorite, and so that wasn't the one he wanted to marry. So she's saying because Jacob really uh, ignores me and treats me poorly because his favorite's Rachel, uh, God has blessed me by giving me a son. He has heard of my distress. So uh, Simeon's name was a reminder of of, uh, of that. Now, when when the text here describes them as brothers, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Uh, that's sort of odd because there are six sons to Simeon, to uh, uh, excuse me, to Jacob, and to Leah. So why does God, uh, through Jacob, emphasize this? He's emphasizing the fact that their character is similar. This is they're they're grouped together here as and coupled together as a team because they uh, shared similar sin nature trends, trends towards anger and bitterness, vindictiveness and cruelty. They seem to have been motivated by a deep-seated uh, anger. And so this was particularly seen in that just uh, horrific and perverse episode that occurred back in uh, Genesis chapter, uh, I think it was chapter 36, when the uh, Dinah is... Uh, chapter 34, when Dinah is raped by the son of Sh- by Shechem, the son of Hamor, and uh, these two, Simeon and Levi, come up with this plan to wreak vengeance upon the inhabitants of of, uh, of Shechem by having all of the men in the town uh, faking an alliance with them that they will uh, they'll have this wedding and they'll all be invited, but first of all they have to. Uh, they have to be circumcised. And so after all the men are circumcised and being laid up in uh, post-operative uh, pain, then Levi and Simeon came in and killed them all. And so this is what is referred to there by the, uh, in verses 6 and 7, is their anger and their self-will and their anger and their cruelty. And because of this, uh, the consequence is going to be that they are going to be removed from any kind of position of uh, political influence in Israel, and they will not have; a, they will be dispersed and scattered among the various tribes of 
in Israel. And so uh, Levi had no possession whatsoever. Simeon is given a territorial possession down. As you see, it's the blue area in the south, uh, completely surrounded in, by the green area, which was the tribal allotment to Judah. Uh, Simeon included the area of Ziklag and Beersheba, and yet uh, Simeon just sort of dissipated, intermarried with Judah, and it's not long into the history of the southern kingdom that Simeon just basically disappears uh, <clears throat> into the uh, tribe of Judah. And so they don't have any... Um, any real significance. Now, later on, during the time of the divided kingdom, uh, what remained of uh, Simeonites moved so far south to the land of Edom that they were they eventually began to uh, intermarry there and also uh, lost much of their uh, their identity in relationship to uh, having a distinct possession. Now, Levi is a tribe of priests, and God is going to bless them. Levi was the third son born to Jacob and Leah, and his name means attached or joined, and this was a pun based on Leah's feelings of rejection by Jacob. Uh, It was given to him also because of a hope that uh, Leah expressed at the time of his birth that somehow this would make her more attractive to Jacob. And in Genesis 29:34 we read, And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Now this time will my husband become attached unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called uh, Levi. Now originally the Levites were not priests. That did not come about for another 400 years until the time of their uh, the Jewish redemption, deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And at that time is when the Levitical tribe was set aside, and this is inaugurated with a specific covenant with the tribe of Levi in Numbers, mentioned in Numbers uh, chapter 18, verse 19. And this meant that none of the Levites would have any inheritance directly within the, the tribes, they would be scattered among all the tribes, and it was the responsibility of the other tribes to provide for the support of the priests and Levites. Then we come to the next key uh, prophecy, and that's the prophecy related to, uh, related to Judah. Judah is the most significant, of course, because of the messianic uh, implications of this particular uh, prophecy, which begins in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, indicating a position of conquest. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, verse 9 states. From the prey, my son, uh, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Then verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, indicating that this would be the tribe that produced the rulers of Israel. 
Uh, the scepter shall not depart from the tribe of Israel. Never would that disappear. They would always have a ruler on the throne, which, of course, uh, foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ, who is from the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now this last verse, as we'll see in a minute, has definite allusions to what is going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and destroys his enemies, and that whole imagery of washing his garments in wine. We touched on this Tuesday night in Revelation 19 when uh, the lamb returns. His, it's as if his robes are dipped in blood. We'll see other passages that picture him coming up from Edom. His initial return is to Basra, and as he returns, brings the Jews from Basra to Jerusalem, his garments are stained with blood. And blood is the color of wine, or wine is the color of blood, reminiscent of that. And so that's the picture here. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And so this is an illusion and a, a prophecy related to the Messiah coming, uh, the Messiah from the tribe of Judah who will come and will bring about this bloodbath that occurs at the end of the tribulation period. And Genesis 49.12 concludes that prophecy. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth uh, whiter than milk. So in the, as we look at these verses, I just want to point out a few things about about Judah. Uh, Judah is going to be a leader of the of his brothers. This was indicated by the initial statement made when she when uh, Leah named him. Verse uh, Genesis twenty nine verse thirty five says, and she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. So Judah is formed on a root that has the idea of praise, a root word that has its idea of praise or sounds like uh, it means praise. And he's called this so that his brothers will praise him because of his uh, leadership. He showed some leadership, uh, some failures early on. But in Genesis 44, after Joseph has been... um, taken to Egypt, he begins to show some leadership in relation to the famine and Benjamin. And this shows that even though he was pretty messed up earlier, uh, this aspect of his character began to manifest itself. In the wilderness march, when the Israel came out of the land, the tribe of Judah went first in the order of march, according to Numbers 10, verse 14. Also, Judah had the largest tribal allotment in Canaan, as well as the largest population according to Numbers chapter 1 and Numbers 26. So when we look at the uh, promise related to the lion aspect, this is tied in when we get to Revelation 5.5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of 
Judah. This directly fulfills the promise, the prophecy of verses 10 and 12, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from between his feet, until uh, Shiloh comes. Now, this phrase related to the coming of Shiloh is a term that has uh, a certain level of uncertainty. Generally, it is taken that Shiloh is a title uh, for the Messiah, for the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore he is often referred to as Shiloh. But there is also another school of thought that sees the meaning of Shiloh as the one as meaning quote to whom it belongs, and looks at a passage where this word is used in Ezekiel twenty one twenty seven. Uh, where it's, which states, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he comes whose right it is or to whom it belongs, and I will give it to him. And the ancient Greek translation of the Septuagint interpreted Shiloh in this way, that it really means to whom it belongs. And so the that way Shiloh would not be taken as a as a title, but Genesis 49.10 would be translated, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until he uh, whose right it is comes. And that is, again, a reference to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the evidence from the Hebrew is, uh, uh, fits that interpretation better than the view that uh, Shiloh is a personal name uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ, even though there are there's a lot of discussion and debate on that, that seems to me to be the best uh, best solution. Uh, when we look at uh, look at the tribal allotment here, again, you can see down in the lower uh, left side to the west of the Dead Sea, see the green area. That's the area shaded for Judah all the way from. Uh, Jerusalem in the northwest across to the, uh, to the Mediterranean and all of the area to the south, uh, including all of what is now the Gaza Strip as well as the uh, area in the Palestinian territory down around Hebron and those areas around uh, Bethlehem and on. All of that would be part of the tribe of Judah. Now we have several phrases in here that, um, are of significance, I think, prophetically. Uh, first of all, in <clears throat> in verse um, verse eleven, we have the phrase "binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine." This certainly uh, relates to a language related to a colt and the vine that we find. Uh, and the Lord, uh, Lord used a lot in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns because this is language that is used to speak of the prosperity and the blessing that is, that is used in, uh, that describes the millennial kingdom. Uh, normally you would not be tying a colt to a vine because most vines aren't very thick and they're not very sturdy and it wouldn't be long before you came back and you find that the uh, colt has wandered off, pulled itself loose from the vine. But this indicates that the choice vine is so thick and so strong and producing so much that 
uh, it's so prosperous that the cold can't get loose. So this was to indicate the uh, an idiom of the prosperity, the strength of the vines, and how prosperous the land was. Then the next phrase, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes, uh, foreshadows various passages such as Isaiah 63.3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. This is used when the Lord uh, uh, prophetically pictures the Messiah coming to destroy the enemies of Israel. This is fulfilled uh, in Revelation 19, verse uh, 13. So this is indicates again the future role of Judah to rule and reign in uh, Israel. Now that brings us to the next uh, key person, which is Zebulun. And there's not a lot that is said about Zebulun in the scripture. So I think we can, we can move through uh, Zebulun and uh, uh, Issachar rather rapidly. Zebulun, it says, is, um, shall dwell by the sea. By the haven of the sea, he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin uh, Sidon. Now, when we look at the uh, at his birth, uh, he is called Zebulun because uh, God has again blessed Leah. He's the sixth son, though, so it skips over uh, Issachar, and Zebulun is treated first here, and then Issachar. Uh, Genesis thirty twenty. Uh, Leah says, God has given me, Zabadani, a good gift, Zebed, which is the, the Hebrew for gift, and that's the root of Zebadani, Z-B-D is the, uh, uh, the three-letter root. And, and she says, God has given me a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me uh, because I have borne him six sons. And so this is her, uh, her hope that this will change the relationship that she has with with Jacob. She must have really loved Jacob, but Jacob doesn't seem to have treated her uh, very well. Now, according to the, the map here, we see that the tribe of Zebulun is actually given this territory here is rather landlocked. He's not against the sea. It is just below the the area Asher's here, and this area here here's Tyre, and Acre here, and this is the area of uh, Lebanon today. But Zebulun is landlocked; doesn't seem to be uh, uh, fulfilling this prophecy about being a haven for ships. But it does seem to indicate that his borders shall adjoin Sidon. This would be, uh, I think, an unfulfilled prophecy that, but that during the millennial kingdom, Zebulun's land will go to the sea. This is the area of Haifa, which is a great, tremendous seaport, the only natural seaport in Israel. And so during the millennial kingdom, Zebulun's land will be, uh, at the, will go to the Mediterranean, and that is when this will be fulfilled. The next one that is mentioned is Issachar, who is the strong one, and Issachar is then mentioned in the next couple of verses uh, related to a donkey. Issachar is a strong donkey lying between two burdens. He saw that the rest was good and the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden, 
yet became a band of slaves. Now, Issachar uh, was a uh, and name means he will bring great reward. He's the ninth son of Jacob, and he's the fifth one by Leah. Uh, Genesis 30, verse 17 and 18, God listened to Leah. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she calls his name Issachar. She thinks of this as a, uh, as a reward. Uh, he's called a great donkey or great ass, as one translation has it. That's not negative. Uh, the donkey was the main beast of burden. That was sort of the uh, John Deere tractor of the ancient world. And so this is a, um, a great compliment when it compares him to a donkey. He is a, uh, he's very useful, he has great strength, and he, is, uh, he accomplishes a lot. But he fails because he also tends to have a, a strain of laziness. And he, the text says he lies down between two burdens, meaning that he doesn't uh, carry them. He is somewhat like Reuben, who is unstable. He is strong, but he's unstable, so he doesn't live up to his, uh, his potential and never accomplishes it. Now, notice the tribal territory of Issachar here is in that area at the lower end of the uh, Valley of Armageddon, the Valley of Esdralon, includes the area of Mount Mora where uh, uh, Gideon's 300 fought and Mount Tabor, which is where uh, Deborah and Barak fought in this area. Many events in the Old Testament happened within the tribal allotment of Issachar. This is also the same area roughly where the city of, of um, uh, Jezreel, uh, was located, so it is at the heart, Issachar is at the heart of the northern kingdom in terms of uh, tribal allotment. Yet Issachar had all of that power and was in such a great position and never really uh, utilized it. Now that takes us through about the first half of the sons. Next time we'll get into the next son, which is Dan, which has some interesting things about him. Uh, especially since he's identified with a serpent and a viper in verse 17. And there are those who have indicated that they think that means that it is from the tribe of Dan that the uh, false prophet comes, and we'll look at that when we come back next time. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to recognize that you control history, and just as... We see these events in these men's lives, and somehow that is distant from us, yet nevertheless we know that just as you control history and oversee uh, the course of history, and that eventually that these men who were in many ways failures in their spiritual life, but nevertheless at key points they, were, uh, they, they trusted you, and you are going to bless them, and there will eventually be a place and role for them in the kingdom. And, Father, that encourages us because we know that many times we have failed. Many times we have failed to live up to our potential. We have failed to be obedient. But yet, Father, we know that in your grace uh, you are going to uh, bless us, not because of what we've done, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, what the Holy Spirit does through us. And at those rare times when we are truly obedient to you, we know that... Um, that that is, has eternal value. 
Father, we pray again as we face a coming year that we might be able to discern the areas we need to change, we need to focus on, and under the power of God the Holy Spirit that we will do so and that we will continue to keep your word a number one priority in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.